0: Well, wonderful, thank you for that (coughs) intro and for uh, being so welcoming to us this morning at wonderful Halliburton. Uh, My wife and I were just discussing on the way up on how beautiful it is and how much we love all your beautiful um, rain, thanks for that, (laughs) but we enjoy it, um, enjoying getting to be with other brothers and sisters in Christ around the area, so it's a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm, I'm stepping in this morning because Pastor Paul, as you may know, had his son's wedding yesterday. So we congratulate him and the family. I'm sure they're exhausted. And uh, I remember my wife and I's wedding. It was a wonderful day. It was an emotional day. Even the cake was in tears. No. Uh, no. No more. I only do a couple just to start. This morning, <clears throat> I would like to spend my, my time with you in the epistle of 1 Timothy. There's a lot that we could learn and gain insight from this epistle, uh, but there's one key aspect that runs throughout the epistle that I would like to zoom in on this morning, and that is the pursuit of godliness. And it's actually quite timely given the, the worship package we just had and that devotional on holiness. Uh, this is essentially, it'll be an extension of that. If our God is a holy God, then we are called to be a holy people, and we reflect God's holiness by our godliness. I would define godliness as living a fruitful and obedient Christian life. There it is, living a fruitful and obedient Christian life. Whether you're a brand new Christian, perhaps it's your first time through the doors this morning, or you've been walking with the Lord for decades, regardless, your main task at hand is the pursuit of godliness. The gospel isn't simply about getting us saved, although it starts there. The gospel also is about transforming our lives. In theological terms, it's, it's justification and sanctification. We're justified in Christ and the cross, but then we are sanctified. We grow in our faith as we grow in our relationship with God and with each other, and that's godliness in a nutshell. It's making us look more like Christ. And there's been so much chaos going uh, all around us over the past two years that I I want to take this opportunity this morning to, to get back to the basics, to get back to what we were called to do. Because the past years have shaken the faith in some, it's discouraged others. And so this morning we're going to get back to the basics, what we were called to do in pursuing godliness. And I would argue that more than just survive like we've been doing, it's time now for us to thrive as the children of God. And I don't mean thrive just in the, the material or physical sense. In fact, the text we're going to look at this morning speaks directly against that. Rather, by thriving, I mean living the life that we were made to live in Christ. Hallelujah. In fact, the reason why Christians are supposed to put godliness over earthly gain, per our sermon title, is because for the Christian, godliness is gain. It's what this whole thing called life is about. So we're going to jump into our text in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Please turn there with me now, and we'll read from verses 3 through 10 in order to seek out some instruction for guarding the faith and growing in godliness. As I read this, would you stand with me? If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit. He understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in the mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. We thank the Lord for his word this morning. Please be seated. So First Timothy by way of background, is an epistle written from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Timothy is his, um, his young protege, his disciple, whom he disciplines. Where'd he go? No? Okay, anyway. Yes. Disciplines. And um, Paul is helping him do that because this is in Ephesus. And Ephesus was tough ground, that's one way to put it. Timothy is starting to, to learn that Ephesus is, is a tough ground place to minister the gospel. And Paul already knew that. Paul had already been to Ephesus. That's why we have the book of Ephesians in the Bible. So Paul was aware that it was tough ground. And so he's writing to Timothy here in these epistles, these letters, First and Second Timothy, to help him to gain some insight um, on key things such as church order, unity, mission. He's trying to help Timothy till the soil. He's like that older, um, older more wiser uh, man mentoring a younger, a younger man in the faith. Just this past week, I was at a pastor's conference at uh, NBC, not far from here. I don't know which direction it is. I was there for the week, and we were with the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptists annual pastor's conference. So the FEB is the denomination that our church at Cornerstone is a part of. And so we had our annual pastor's conference this past year. Uh, this past week, sorry, so there's about 200 or so of us pastors all getting together, and as one of the younger pastors there, I I really enjoyed getting to sit with these older pastors that have been in ministry for decades and getting to learn from them some key insights and just nuggets of wisdom that I could take with them. That was just my one week, but here we have a whole letter of what Paul is doing for Timothy in that, and we need that as a group of believers. We need that kind of instruction from um, an older, a wiser mentor to a younger person in ministry, seeking to pursue godliness. In chapter 5, so we're in chapter 6, just back in chapter 5, Paul is talking to Timothy about church-family relationships, so how how old and young men should interact, uh, women, widows. He talks about slaves and servants in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. So he's talking about these different factions within the church, if you will, these different groupings that you find within the Christian gathering of the early church. But the, the tone changes a little bit, as we just read, where now it appears he's speaking directly to Timothy, in verses three to 10 through 10. And that's because in verses three through 10, he's switching from internal church discussions to now talking about this other faction. This other faction that's within the church, which is the false teachers. And so Paul's tone is changing because now he's telling Timothy there's another faction that might be hidden within your group. And these are the false teachers which you need to be on guard for. And that's why he's reminding Timothy in this section about godliness. If you're going to live out godliness, you need to be reminded of these things. You need to live out your identity together in unity, And Paul, having told Timothy in verse 2 to teach and urge these things, he's now getting to the reason why. Because there were, there were people there teaching differently. That's why Paul spends so much time identifying these false teachers, talking about their, their nature and identity, those with a, a craving for earthly gain, as he says. In essence, he explains that their teaching does not accord with godliness but the teachings of Christ do so the question before us this morning is much the same it's an important question how do we grow in godliness especially when the world is is trying to pull us down into this survivalistic mindset how do we grow how do we thrive in our pursuit of godliness look with me a little closer this is verses three and four If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. You'll notice Paul says that it's a a different doctrine. It's as if there's uh, an A and a B. There's the doctrine that accords with the teachings of Christ, and then there's everything else, everything else that would seek to pull you away. And so for the church, any teaching which does not accord with the teaching of Christ will inevitably lead to her destruction. So the first choice we need to make is to choose A. We need to choose godliness. Growing in godliness starts by staying on the course, which is what we need to do. We need to stay on course. That's verses 3 through 5. This is our first point for how we grow in godliness by staying on course. And it's, it's the point that Paul is making in verses 3 to 5, as he's telling Timothy about these false teachers. Staying on course means not getting pulled away or distracted. And we can be distracted in a number of ways, can't we? It's something of the human condition. I think of the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave, the God... I love, And I think for, for some, the past two years have served as just that distraction. But here, Paul describes the type of, uh, of person, this false teacher, who would seek their own gain and why they are the ones seeking to pull the brothers and sisters in Christ off course. Look at these descriptors with me, starting in verse 4. He is puffed up with conceit. He understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant frictions among people who are depraved in the mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain for them. Wow, what a list to describe these false teachers. These guys are are full of empty wind and hot air. They're full of envy, which which leads to anger and, and strong disagreements over the simplest of things. They make big things small and, and the, the big things seemingly unimportant as they seek to corrupt people's minds. Listen, gospel instruction aims at unity and love, while false teaching aims at division and discontentment. It's seeking to Pull you away from the faith in which you have, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You know, which one of the, these characteristics stuck out to me as I was reading through the text was when it says they are depraved in the mind and deprived of the truth. I think that's the essence of it. These guys don't have the, the centrality of the gospel in their lives. And so their, their eyeglasses, if you will, by which they see the world have become blurry And it's obscured their vision. I know for myself, when my glasses get blurry or smudged, I I often think I might be better if I just take them off because they've lost their usefulness. Maybe that's why I keep missing the laundry basket with my dirty socks. (laughs) Could be. But these false teachers have that same blurry vision that have caused them to deviate from the teachings of Christ. And look at where it's gotten them. They're causing dissension, friction, disunity. they're speaking slanderously, suspiciously, they're craving controversy. They're causing a mess. And so Paul warns Timothy that that is not the way of godliness. And in fact, Timothy, you need to be on guard against such people. Like a shepherd keeping watch over his flock, Timothy, there are sheeps, there are wolves in sheep's clothes. And some of them may have already infiltrated your herd. So he's telling Timothy, be wary of these false teachers. There were people there in Ephesus getting pulled off course. And I would argue that that's not such a leap for us to understand today. In the, the art of uh, interpretation in theology, it's known as the hermeneutical ladder. And just like any... There it is, just like any ladder, it has different rungs on it. And the art of interpretation or or hermeneutics is about taking something, uh, a text, a theological idea, from these biblical times and moving it into our times. But of course, that sometimes involves going up a different rung of the ladder. You know, we're not here sitting as slaves, so how do we apply text on slavery? But the bottom rung, as I have there, is a direct application, and that's what we're dealing with here. Because there are still false teachers, there are still people in the church today seeking to disrupt or destroy your faith, your pursuit of godliness. They're still trying to distract us from the truth of the gospel. And if you want to avoid letting these false teachers get a hold of you and your church, then you need to pursue Christ and godliness. That's your focus, Christian. Christ is your north star, just like the sailors used to guide them. He is your north star, and, and all the other stars in the night sky, beautiful as they may be, are like the false teachers seeking to divert your trajectory, even just a little bit, but to pull you off course from your north star. So that's your identity in Christ. We, cl- we don't cling to this world, but we cling to the cross the cross of Christ, as we pursue godliness. When I was doing my studies in Ireland, uh, my wife and I lived in, in Belfast, Northern Ireland, for three years while I was doing my doctorate there. I was studying the early English Baptists, so that, that's the 1640s to the 1700s. Uh, and while I was there, I discovered the writings of uh, this guy called Benjamin Keach. And I think in this, this book that I'm going to read a couple selections out of, Keech Best describes this, this journey of godliness that every Christian is on. Um, this, this book is an allegory. Uh, how many of you are aware of John Bunyan's allegory, Pilgrim's Progress? And how many of you know this wonderful work? No. I was able to discover it actually in an archive in, in Dublin. So this is, and this is on Amazon, just so you know. I wanted to make sure you could actually get access to this, because this is a great tool for family devotions, reading through the story of the character, whose name is True Godliness, and it's his journey of faith home. And there's a number of episodes and and, uh, characters that he encounters. In this scene that I'll read now, he encounters another character named Riches. And Riches asks True godliness, he says, Do you think I should give entertainment to you and lose all my great honor and credit amongst men? But godliness rightly replies, Is not that honor that comes from God better than all the vain honor poor mortals can give you? Some rich and noble men have, for my sake, denied themselves all the glories of this world and accounted the reproaches of Christ greater riches than all earthly honors and pleasures of sin, which are but for a season. That's true godliness. Denying himself of all the things that this world would tell him are to be expected, are to be desired, and pursuing Christ. That's true godliness. No desires, or no motives, or no goals beyond this. To know Christ, and to make him known. Christ himself even sought the Father's will. He didn't seek to build his own kingdom while he was on earth. He could have, but he didn't. He forsook everything by taking on the form of a man. He became a son of man so that we might become sons of God. He became a son of man so that we might become sons and daughters of the king of kings. And so if the Heavenly Father is your Father, then strive to look like Him. Your, your greatest gain in life will be living in the conformity to the image of Christ the Son. When we were in Ireland at, at a church there in Belfast, we had a young guy in the congregation who um, was in an accident, and so he had a terrible limp. And he had a young son, uh, the wife... Um, Or his partner wasn't in the picture at this point, unfortunately. And so he was raising this young son on his own. And the son actually learned to walk with that same limp. And so the son had to go through therapy and and physical therapy to unlearn looking like his father. That's That's how innate it should be for us to look like our Heavenly Father. But there's things in this world like sin and temptations that seek to pull us off course. So don't, don't buy into these other, this, this B option, the things of this world, don't buy into those. Buy in and be wholly devoted to the teachings of Christ. That's the first thing. Secondly, we need to be content. And this one can be a, a hard point for us sometimes in the, the day and age we're living. We're, we live in a culture of perpetual discontentment. But look with me at verses 6 through 8. What does Paul say? He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Here Paul is giving Timothy a formula for life, or a formula for ministry. Godliness plus contentment is great gain. Not power, plus wealth, not popularity, plus influence. It's godliness plus contentment, which results in great gain. In the Greek, it reads, godliness in company with contentment is now great gain. I like that imagery. Um, I would explain it this way. Godliness is a reflection of God's character, and contentment is a reflection of ours. So godliness, when people see us and they see a godly person, they're looking at, in one way, through through a prism, of course, of this world, they're looking at Christ. Godliness is our reflection of God's character. But contentment reveals our character, like a window in your house that as people walk by the street and they look into, they're looking through the window of contentment to see how you're reflecting that godliness. And Paul explains it similarly in the next verse, in verse 7. When he says, we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it. Now that's perspective. Paul, here is, he's drawing on this widely cited principle from antiquity. You may have even recognized it as we read it from Job. In Job 1 verse 21, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's that idea of the temporal versus the eternal. Even if someone were to gain great riches in their life, in this life, their gain would be short-lived because there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. Hearses don't have a trailer hitch because you can't take those things with you. The pharaohs tried it, but we know... But that is not the case. And if you can't take it with you, why, why buy into it now? Think about it this way. Your, your birth and your death provide vantage points by which you can look down and appraise the things of this world to deem, to see what is truly necessary and of value. It's not a new idea for Paul. In First Timothy chapter 4, he said this, have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now that verse right there, our takeaway this morning, isn't that you don't need to go to the gym anymore. Um, Although some of you wrote that down. What are you doing? That's not our takeaway this morning, but it it again repeats this idea, this clear contrast between the physical and the eternal. Godliness has eternal value, so pursue it. And like sanctification, it's a daily process. That that verse we just read said you have to work, you have to train yourself at being godly, at, at being content, and so live with contentment. Desire to to make it your goal to have a life filled with contentment. You aren't gonna covet your neighbor's things if you're content with your own. Just like you aren't gonna covet the things of this world when you are content in Christ. You know, and the things of this world will go strangely dim. Being content in Christ, this wasn't just a struggle for the church here at Ephesus. Paul actually breaks this idea down even more when he's writing to the church in Philippi. He said this, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. For I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And I mentioned that being content is a, is a high calling. It's a hard task. To be able to say when I am brought low, when I'm in that valley that I am content, is a high calling. But it is nonetheless a Christian calling. And it's hard when we lose a, a job or a family member or a relationship becomes strained. When we are caught struggling, it brings us into that valley And sometimes into the the valley of the shadow of death. But when we place our contentment on situations, it will waver. So place your contentment not on your gain, but on your God. He will provide you with daily contentment. And, And practically, pursuing that type of Contentment, That type of radical, life-changing contentment requires daily prayer. In fact, prayer is to godliness what the heart is to the body. Just as the heart pumps blood throughout the body to sustain life, prayer embodies our pursuit of godliness. Prayer sets our pursuit of godliness on fire. When we're caught in the valley of, prayer is our first response not our last resort prayer is our first response because it brings us in alignment with the Father's will and that leads to being content in whatever situation I am so are you content Christian or are you left wanting stay the course pursue contentment and finally Realize that growing in godliness means we have to focus on eternal things. That's verses 9 and 10. Focusing on eternal things means keeping the center as your main focus. It means not getting pulled off course. Focusing on eternal things rather will give you perspective. And I I would argue that the church needs to focus on eternal things now more than ever. Because we need that perspective. We need that resilience right now. And if you want to talk about things that can hinder our pursuit of godliness and this focusing on eternal things, Paul gives us a great example in the text, which we'll read again, and that is money. Paul warns, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. Into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What a sobering thought. That money can destroy someone's faith. I almost want to say if that's you, then you can have all my money. <laughs> because I'd rather have you as a brother or sister in Christ than any amount in my bank account. But it doesn't work that way. You can't buy your salvation, and you certainly can't buy someone else's. But Christ did. But Christ did. On the cross, he purchased, not with money, but by the blood of the Lamb, he purchased our salvation. I would also say this, um, it's almost alarming how much Jesus talked about money in the scriptures. Um, did you know that he, he talked about money more than he talked about faith and prayer combined? There's over 2,300 references to money and material things in the Bible. And so we need to address that. We at least need, at least need to stop and ask why. What is this attack on, on money? Let's dive into that just for a quick second. I would put before you this morning that, that money is Satan's currency of choice. Pardon the pun. It's his currency because it has attached to it an innate sense of, of value. And when we struggle to know our own value or even what our values are and how they define us, we immediately turn to something tangible and easily identifiable. But the problem is, as soon as we identify our value in something like money, it begins to own us. That's why the text calls it a snare. It takes ownership of us because we've given it our value. What's your relationship this morning to money? We undoubtedly have some savers in the room. We have some spenders. Uh, Providentially, they're often married to each other. So that's helpful, thank the Lord. But I bet money affects your relationships. It certainly affects your marriage. Even if you have very little of it, you can still fight over it. So are you content in the little, or are you left wanting? Because constantly noticing your lack isn't being content either. It's like if you go out in the parking lot and you see a really nice car, You can notice that and say, oh, wow, that's really cool. But you're not content if you complain to your spouse the whole ride home. Oh, why does he have that car? Should he have that car? That's not, you know. Once we start to change the question to ask for a justification, that's when we're starting to notice our lack. That's when we're starting to put ourselves in their shoes and rather wishing they were in our shoes and say, my life is harder. Because we're placing our contentment, we're placing this focus on eternal things, on things with a tangible value, not eternal value. Here's the principle. For where your treasure is, and finish this with me, there your heart will be also. So how do we use our money? I say our money as if it's ours and not God's. You know, As if it's for building our kingdom and not for furthering his. But how we use our money tells the truth about who we are and whose we are. It's like how we talked about contentment revealing the heart. True godliness must never be commercialized. And I pray that it never comes to this church or your pastor. Because true godliness is a matter of the heart, not the pocket. Well, let's take a step back, because there's something more going on here than just uh, an attack on money. Actually, what Paul is is getting at is that it's the craving of things such as money, which will lead to evil, apostasy, ruin, destruction. Money is, is simply the means to an end here. And the hard truth is that we can turn anything into an idol, can't we? It's another part of the human condition, I think. Money is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the things that we need to be on guard against in our desire for them. We need to do these three things. I have a slide for it here. We need to identify our idols. We need to address our idols. And we need to deal with them this morning. Don't go another day without having done those things. And You'll need to do that, if I'm being honest, daily, weekly at least. You'll need to always be on guard against these things. Here's a bumper sticker for you. Don't be idle about your idols, right? You can't be idle about them. It's not the size of your bank account. It's how often you check it. That's what's consuming. That's what will affect your life. It will 100% affect your worship, particularly your giving. the root issue is this love for money and how do we combat that how do we combat that desire in a culture which glorifies it brothers and sisters we need to be set apart I mentioned earlier this book the travels of true godliness again a great devotional tool Um, I didn't write this so I'm not getting any royalties when I say that don't worry This isn't my transcription, but this is a great tool for for teaching your kids the faith. Um, There's another scene uh, in here I want to read as well. In this scene, true godliness encounters uh, a character called covetousness. And true godliness says this of covetousness. He hath also grievously corrupted many who profess kindness to me by encumbering their minds so with the affairs of this life that they cannot find the way to the church. When they should be hearing God's word, he forces them to abide in their shops. Nor will he suffer many of them to take just a little time to pray in their families, nor in their closets. You see, covetousness succeeded in robbing people. Not just of their possessions, but of their identity. It wasn't just what they had, it was who they were. That's what this text and First Timothy is warning us about, because covetousness is a bottomless pit. In fact, covetousness is quite literally the opposite of contentment. And covetousness is this bottomless pit that the world seems to find refuge in. And you know, as Christians, we're not supposed to look like the world, right? In fact, Christians aren't supposed to look like the world at all. Romans 12. You probably think of that verse right away. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, be transformed to the image of Christ. That that one verse alone basically summarizes this whole sermon. When the church looks like the culture, then it's failed at its job to change it. To be salt, to be light. We've been set apart to pursue godliness, and the world isn't doing that they're pursuing themselves their their own power their riches their desires their their feelings when we stop pursuing christ we begin to reflect the culture almost instantaneously And don't take my word for it, there's a J.C. Rock quote I really like here. It says, there is a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have and think they have enough. A cheap Christianity which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice. (laughs) It costs nothing and is worth nothing. Now he says in this day, but he wrote that in the 1800s. But it's still true Today, if we aren't set apart, if we aren't holy as He is holy, like we talked about in those songs, then we'll become like the ones we were called to save with the gospel. So let's not give the world a cheap and ultimately useless Christianity along the way, a religion that's void of conviction. Let's give them godliness and let's show them Christ. At that pastor's conference I was just at this past week, One of the speakers said this, Our godliness is most evident by our nonconformity to this world and the things of it. Think about that. Our godliness is most evident by the less we look like this world and the more we look like our God. So be set apart, Christian. Be on guard. And that, that requires community. That's why we need to be together. We need to be in this rhythm, this routine of coming together each week. Christianity isn't a solo a sport. It's a team sport. So how are we going to grow in godliness? We're going to stay on course, be content, and focus on eternal things. I'll end with this. Paul actually uh, summarizes this uh, best in the next two verses. This is verses 11 and 12 of our text this morning. He repeats these very things in his closing words to Timothy. Timothy, He said, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight, the fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession of presence to many witnesses. So Paul is telling Timothy, You need to do all those things that we were talking about in pursuing godliness. You need to do all those things because and then he gives three quick reasons here. The first is because it is your calling. Timothy, it is your calling. It's a personal calling to you. The text says a man of God. So If you are a son or daughter of God, that is a calling to you as well. And it's a relational calling. Uh, it says uh, the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. It's a personal calling. It's a relational calling. It's your commission. It says pursue righteousness and godliness faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. That's the commission that we are to have to to take, to seek, and save the lost, to go on mission. And then finally, the third reason to do it, it's our calling, it's our commission, and the third reason is because Jesus is coming again. So let that pursuit be empowered by that reality. The ending of the story has already been written. You don't need to worry or wonder as the disciples did, about what would happen next. That's why they were so confused as to why Jesus was being crucified. Think of Peter's denial. But we don't have that. On this side of the cross, we have that reassurance of how the story will end. There's a goal and a timeline when he returns. We don't know when, but it is inescapable. So as I said off the top... It's time for the church to get past just surviving, and it's time for us to thrive, as Paul taught us today, by gaining in Christ. And as we refocus our vision this morning, we'll see that godliness is truly gain for the Christian. And, and with that proper understanding of gain, we can now realize that we weren't made to simply survive. We were called to so much more. To thrive as children of God as we pursue godliness. To thrive in our church family. So Let me pray for you as we do just that. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word and for everything that it, it teaches us. We thank you by your Holy Spirit. You're able to implant these seeds into our lives so that we can take them from here. So that we can share them as we go into this world. And so, God, I pray for this church, for this community of believers, this gathering of the saints. I pray that you would, would gird them. I pray that you would provide them with uh, resilience for the gospel. And in an increasingly hostile world, world, I pray that that resilience itself would also grow. And that as they pursue Christ, as they pursue godliness and, and holiness, that they would be set apart. And that that, in and of itself, would be, a gospel witness, that this city, this town would take notice of that. So use them, I pray, by your Holy Spirit in Christ's name. Amen.